1: Welcome back in. It's the Lions 24 7 podcast. Just a few days removed from our first trip to Beaver Stadium of 2021. Um, in case you missed it, we came to you on Saturday after leaving the stadium and after getting a chance to speak with James Franklin, some Penn State coordinators and players. Um, went through a lot uh, on Saturday's show, so it was a post-practice podcast, Sean and I were both inside the press box watching, shared our observations on Sunday morning, each of us got up, um, put some thoughts together uh, on on paper, well, not on paper, but in our Word documents and put them on the site, and uh, we both wrote a lot, Sean, so I, I just wanted to get that all, all out there, we don't want to do a ton of rehash, but we do have some things we didn't get to as we've had a chance to collect our thoughts. It was just really, again, as I kind of, it sinks in, two hours of watching this team really appreciate the access. Um and and I find myself as Sunday was going on and we got into Monday and now Tuesday, little things you kind of remember that stood out and also just wow that was a lot of football to digest and it's been a long time since we could say we had something like that. And be sure to check out that post not
2: post-game podcast that we did on Saturday. Probably if if, if you're trying to make a decision here, there's probably more information in that last one. We haven't recorded this one, but there's probably a little bit more coming from that last one. So make sure you check that out, circle back around if you haven't done so already. But yeah, there's some stuff that – you know, you take some time to reflect on. And of course, there's no replay. There's no going back to the DVR or anything like that. So there's no stat sheets. And, uh, you know, you're just kind of going from memory, what we had to write down and, and things like that. And, you know, there, there are a few things that popped up and you covered the offense, I covered the defense, but there, there were both things, uh, you know, when you're watching the offense, obviously you notice the defense and likewise. So um, so to, to me, the thing that stuck out just watching the defense really um, was the tempo that the offense tried to run them at. And, and that's something that was kind of, of, um you know slamming on the gas and then slowing it down a little bit. It was it was a lot, and I believe Mike Yersich talked about this in the post-game. There's a lot of getting going not a ton of look at me on the sidelines and things like that and i think that's you know that's welcome after the last year um you know the slow plotting offense with the quarterback draws and everything was one thing and then you get between the the plays and you've got to, you've got a bunch of look at me you've got a bunch of guys just standing around and you know that can get old pretty fast so i'm excited to see what kind of tempo they bring um they didn't show a ton of different things on offense, but they were able to, um, you know, hit the gas a little bit, and that was cool. And and they had some success with it. They moved the ball down the field, especially early, um, hit that big play to Cam Solomon Brown down the sideline, uh, made a really nice catch on it. But, you know, they they got up to the line, they got going, and I don't think they finished the drive with a touchdown, but they were
1: able to, uh you know, to get some guys open and 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 really, I think, put the defense on their heels. It took some shots downfield pretty early, too. There was one that uh, was underthrown, but it ultimately drew a, a defensive pass interference call against Daquan Hardy, picked up a chunk of yards there. Um, as we noted, um, could have been sharper executing the, some of those downfield attempts. But yeah, I think you're, you're able to kind of line up those shots a little bit more and try to tee off on a defense when you lock them into a personnel package, right? When you're not giving them an opportunity to, to get someone else in the field. You know, that's one other thing about this being a scrimmage situation, a, a practice field situation is we didn't see a ton of um, you know intricate substitutions and, and intricate uh, personnel package is being interwoven within a, a possession it was a lot of the the 11 guys that we saw run onto the field for a possession we're typically the 11 guys in the field at the end of that possession. We saw a little bit of rotational stuff with Cam Sullivan-Brown and Keandre Lambert-Smith early in this contest. But if it was 12 personnel coming out, kind of would stick that way. If it was 11 personnel, that's kind of where we saw it. Um, and I think this is also a benefit to the defense, something that Franklin has mentioned a few times during the spring, Sean, is bringing in Yursich, getting multiple with the offense, and having this kind of tempo on the practice field here in the spring where you're really focused in on yourself instead of whoever. your next opponent is that Saturday, you are forcing the defense to, to get on its heels and be able to communicate while playing that way. And communication is something we've pointed to. From the safety all the way to the defensive front, Um, that's something that the Penn State offense right now is looking to disrupt in the teams they play. And it's something that I think the Nittany Lions, the Brent Prize group need to get better at and have some new pieces here, some new starters in the mix. So you'd like to think that over the course of the 15 practice periods, particularly when you got a little bit of added pressure, a little bit of added spotlight in Beaver Stadium on Saturday, that's going to facilitate some uncomfortable growth to get you where you maybe need to be going into preseason camp. I think so, especially with young guys
2: at you know, at spot like, spots like outside linebacker and they play with some younger guys at safety on Saturday. So the defense really, um, you know, communication is something that was lacking last year. And I think is, is certainly a work in progress. And I, I wouldn't expect it to be a finished product at this point in the spring. Uh, replacing what you're replacing, especially, you know, three guys on the defensive line. And then, you know, it's sort of a wave back to the, to the linebackers. Jesse is not in there. Um, so yeah, I think that that's something that it, it, it's good to see. Brent Price said after the game, you know, they, they were fairly vanilla, probably not as vanilla as they usually are for something like a blue-white game. So, I mean, they usually just come out and, do their regular stuff, don't blitz a lot. They did a little bit of that on Saturday and, and maybe showed a little bit more, but it seems like they have more packages that they want to get to. Uh, we've talked in the past about, you know, maybe playing John Sutherland in that Sam role and that star role um, without Jair Brown. You know, you're not going to show that, uh, especially at a, at a time like Saturday. So so I, I agree with your point. It's it, it's kind of good for everybody to get them uh, get them uncomfortable
1: and get them sort of rocking back. And we saw that on Saturday. And, and at the same time, that, that requires that, you know the quarterback to be a maestro of sorts when you're trying to run an offense like this to be in command of it, and we get it. You know, Sean Clifford, Mike Yursich. Um, I'm sure if we had been able to talk to Taquan Roberson after after the practice on Saturday, he would have said the same thing that so much of this spring has been about install um, and, and gaining familiarity and, and and terminology and everything else that goes into it that they didn't get last year with the first year offensive coordinator. And Franklin seemed to indicate that that he would really see, like to see this last week of practice. Um, you know, be, making things become a bit more fluid. I think uh, m- making it go from that the installation pace to the pace that you'd prefer to run on the field when you're getting ready for a matchup here in August into September, um, and that's something that that you would expect them to make a major leap in. You don't need to have practices to get better at those kind of things. You can you can do some walkthroughs. You can work in the film room between now and August. But I think that's something that at quarterback, I don't think any of these guys would tell you. And I don't think Mike Gursich would tell you that, that they put out, you know, a polished performance that is, that is, you know, ready for prime time quite yet. And, and the, the, the fact is they are, you know, still working. They're a work in progress is what I would call them. And, um, you know, the thing that, that Yersuch said that I think caught some people's attention, that he feels like Clifford processing uh, and, and, and going through his progressions is something that, that is, is they, they need to see more from, they want to see progression there. And Franklin said himself, uh, you know, talking about the backup quarterback spot, they still have a lot to learn about those guys. So, quarterback, you know, if you're going to be able to pull off this kind of offensive plan, and it's a, it, it, you'd love to see an up-tempo attack where you're where you're putting the pressure on the defense. But if you don't have the the, the right guy out there, you know, making sure those pieces are in place as the extension of the staff at quarterback. Those plans can get really, really narrow in terms of what you could actually expand upon and, and, and ask, ask your offense to accomplish because you got to make sure you're protecting the ball and you got to make sure you're getting in the line and, and getting those plays off correctly because everything else is nice and it's imaginative, but you got to take care of those basics before you can get to that, that launch pad. I do want to say this though uh, quarterback was not a
2: complete disaster on Saturday, and, the, and it seems to have morphed from that, especially looking at our stuff on the message boards. It seems to have morphed from, okay, this guy threw an interception to okay this guy's the worst quarterback that's ever played in the history of the game it's a bit of a leap right there the quarterback you surprised did, they, no not at all but the the kid the the, the the quarterbacks did show some nice things on Saturday I thought they made some nice throws the pressure was certainly um a constant especially up the middle um, playing with those two replacement guards essentially um so you know we we talked about there were some balls that were thrown that Probably wouldn't have gotten off in, in time. And, you know, that was something to deal with, but it's just, it's, it's funny to see the leap that people have made because they, you know, a lot of people think Sean Clifford is very, very bad. Um, just, you know, he throws an incompletion. Well, that's confirmation bias right there. Um, but no, I mean, I think they showed some nice things. They threw some nice balls and, and there's certainly still room, a ton of room for improvement there. Um, I don't think there's any question about it, but to me, Saturday, what we saw from the quarterbacks is, is pretty much what I expected going in. And, you know, like I said, Room for improvement. There's, there's, it's going to be a work in process all summer. Um, just not the, the devil. Throwing passes out there on
1: Saturday, so I, I know people were were trying to reconcile with the excitement about Caitlin King and, and and the defense, you know, creating turnovers, making plays, and then balancing with that that those passes were coming being launched by Penn State quarterbacks. And am I supposed to be excited? Am I supposed to be nervous? Am I supposed to be somewhere in the middle? I mean, it can be both. Uh, lets, we got to give the defense pre- uh, some credit here, the defensive pressure up front. I mentioned that, you know, writing that some of what we saw was certainly skewed by that. Be in, and in the. Quarter- Quarterbacks did face some pressure there, um, and, and look—I I don't think there was a disaster situation. I, I think you—you you would have. It, it just—it's hard to figure out. Um, you know, it's—it's it's dangerous to say what we saw on Saturday should be applied to what this is. What the spring practice has been like for the quarterback position. I mean, we—we we have no idea. We heard that. Taequann Roberson has, has wild throws on the practice field as much as anybody else. And Sean Clifford has his, has had his share. We saw some pretty passes from Taekwon Roberson um, on Saturday, as we, as we talked about. Probably none better than that back shoulder touchdown to, to Daniel George during the action. And then you saw a, a really poorly executed screen pass that just gets lofted to Kalen King and, and that results in points and a mesh point fumble that, that I think could have been a scoop and score for the defense. And, you know, these are things that, that happen on the practice field. That's where you would prefer they stay on the practice field. And then you never see a play like that again. And you build off of that. I think we're all just gonna be curious because I know the quarterbacks, starting with Sean Clifford, uh, a guy who's been described as on a mission, a guy who is very clearly, Applying what happened to him last year, being benched, working through that, and coming into here. Something that he's, I think, carrying on his shoulder. Um, he's a guy that always seems very motivated, uh, emotional, and, and invested. That's never been the problem with Sean. Uh, sometimes controlling that has seemingly been the problem when you get into game action. But I think coming to the field this Friday... You you, you want to see a step forward. You want to you want to be able to kind of go back and write about it and talk about it and give people things to write and talk about from the positive, uh, because they don't want. They, last year was tough. There, there's no reason that you do not want some kind of uh, you know dark cloud being cast over your quarterback room coming out of spring if you have a couple of performances here. Let's say Sean throws a couple of bad interceptions on uh, Friday night. We're gonna be back in Beaver Stadium, by the way. So is a bunch of other media people are going to write about it people are going to it's going to leave a taste in their mouth going into the rest of the off season and I think this is a spot on the field right now where you'd like to dispel any kind of lingering concern. Although let's face it, even if they went out there and lit it up, there'd be a lot of folks wondering, well, what's going to happen when they go to Madison on September fourth? Yeah, I was going to say he can go out and throw, you know, complete every pass on set on Friday
2: night and throw four touchdowns. And it's still not going to matter to some people, and but the people are
1: going to rip Brent Pry for the re- for the following week, right? I mean, somebody's got to be good, somebody's got to yeah, be someone's bad. Gotta that's got to be. be it. Um, any- anybody
2: else that jumped out to you on the offensive side of the ball in terms of youth? I know we talked. About about a couple of guys Jaden Dotton was one that uh, that showed up for me uh, Malik Mega and Tyler Warren you know some of those guys are a little bit lower on the depth chart not sure that we see them this year making a big impact but
1: showed some nice things on Saturdays anybody that jumped out for you I think it's worth noting that it was a small sample size for Christian Veyer, at quarterback, but for a guy who didn't play a senior high school season and is, you know, a dozen practices into his college football career uh, with uh, an offensive coordinator who demands a lot from you, like Mike Yersich, there was a, a level of comfort um, and, and just judging off the body language here again, and, and, and how he uh, approached downfield and targeting receivers and avoiding any kind of glaring mistakes he did not get the volume of snaps that Roberson got and Clifford uh, got. And we don't think that will be the case when we see this team next. And we didn't think it would be the case on Saturday, but in the snaps that he got came a- away thinking he was probably further along than I thought he might be. Uh, and then I would go back to Tyler Warren. I just um, I, I'm high on Theo Johnson, Brenton strange still am. Um, I think, more uh more high at this point on Tyler Warren than I thought I would be in his second year of college. He he looks the part, Sean. Um I I want to see more of him, quite frankly. You know, we we got a little bit of a flash of physicality late in the season last year and he said, "Okay, well that aspect of his game is coming together nicely." We saw more of the pass catcher on Saturday at Beaver Stadium and and for a guy who is one year less than one year into his career at tight end and learning the position, uh, checks off a lot of boxes based on what I saw on Saturday.
2: Yeah, and it's it's a tall order putting up a, him up against Brenton Strange and Theo Johnson, but he, he does look pretty natural out there. And like I said, I don't know that we're going to see a ton of him this fall. But looks like they got a player there, which is uh, certainly when you're stocking that position, it's a very you know light on numbers. Position there's only three guys, and then Khalil Dinkins is going to show up this summer, so it's it's very light on numbers. But you you know it's a it's a very talented talented group switching over to the other side of the ball, and this. We'll, we'll go back to your reminder about the offensive line, which struggled in terms of having a couple of replacement guys in there and the interior sort of, the interior defensive line sort of dictated how things went. And that's pretty much to be expected as if you look what's, what was put out there. But a couple of young guys stuck out to me and I think I touched on them in the post game, but I don't really remember how much I said. But Amin Vanover and Zariah Fisher were both playing defensive and I thought they both looked pretty good. And that's, uh, I don't know that, you know, they're, they're, breaking into the rotation good, but Fisher in particular looks he looks at home. He looks further along than I thought he would be. A violent player, which is uh very good to see. Um, you know, we that's kind of always been his reputation. Um, but it seemed like he was he was flowing things and he was and he was feeling things out at defensive end pretty well. So I'm excited to see him. I I'm, I'm just curious if he can break into the back end of that rotation and give them something. Of course, we we've talked about, you know, the 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 lack of numbers that they have there, the lack of experience that they have after losing two guys. Um Um, and maybe Amin Vanover can be that guy. I mean, we've sort of built up Hakeem Beeman all offseason as that potential big defensive end. I think Amin Vanover could fill a similar role. Don't know that he's Quite as ready to go at it as uh, Keen Beeman. so I, I'm not sure that we would see Amin Vanover thrown out there against Wisconsin to open the season. But I could see a similar role there. Um, I still think he's going to grow into a defensive tackle, but that's just kind of nature eventually taking over. But he, he looked pretty good there. And Jake Wilson, uh, the walk on from Nazareth, had a couple of sacks. And you know, blue white game sacks are, but or summer or spring scrimmage sacks are what they are. Very difficult to say, by the way. Um, but he looked the part. of him. I'm just wondering if he's a guy that a couple years down the road. Loved his, his tape at, at Nazareth. Loved the production that he was able to put up there. You wonder if a couple years down the road, he's a guy that really works his way into the rotation. So he's, he's the guy that
1: sort of caught my attention as well. Wilson, six foot three, 245 pound freshman, uh, that, that made some noise on Saturday, as Sean said. I would also say Smith Vilbert, I thought, um, I got a chance to see him. He, he's a kid who looks like he could bounce around a bit. I know he's more like 260, but his frame, his physical frame, I don't know where he is in terms of the weight he will be when he ultimately ends up leaving Happy Valley or peaking in Happy Valley. Um, but he almost looked like someone who could be, present some versatility up front. Although I know they like him on the edge, Sean. Um, there's just so many names to work with, I feel like and, and and just odds are in favor of there being a couple of these guys who break out. You need it to happen because you need to fortify what you're doing at the too deep situation. But it just seems like because of the numbers, the odds are it's going to be somebody. Um, it kind of uh, you kind of make some educated guesses at this point in the year, I suppose. Uh, but but I think it's a great spot to be if you're John Scott because the, the talent is there. You see it all across. You know, you, you they bring in the second wave of guys there on Saturday. You like the athleticism, you like the size. You just wonder who's going to carry it over into the preseason and ultimately into Big Ten competition because you're getting some early tests and then you got Auburn coming in. So you got to be fortified up front. Moving inside, you, you, Derek Tangelo is a
2: guy we touched on on Saturday. But you know, in thinking about it more, you just you just kept wondering, you know, who that guy. You know, new numbers always, you know, sort of shake me a little bit. Um, you just kept wondering who that guy was that kept popping up near the ball. And it's not like he was the guy making the tackle, but he was under the guy making the tackle. So as a as a defensive tackle that's that's holding up double teams and things like that, that's certainly good to see. So. Uh, I think with the, with the defensive tackles, I'm curious to see coming out of this. And, and he did not play on Saturday. He was in in uniform, but on the sideline. Where Fred Hansard fits into all this? Because you know, you feel like you've got the starters, or or at least you got PJ Must for starting. You've got Hakeem Beeman probably going to be the other starter. Derek Tangelo can, can play that hold him up role, play that one technique, I think. Um, but then Devon Ellis was the next guy in there. Um, you just wonder where Hansard figures in and, and what they're going to do. And, um, usually you find yourself playing four, maybe five defensive tackles. Is he that fifth guy? Maybe Fatuma Mulba, who's also in that same mold as Hansard that, that can, a really strong kid that, doesn't run particularly well, but, uh, you don't really need that in that little box right there. So I'm just curious how that shakes out, how, uh, Hansard fits into the situation, uh, to, excuse me, how, how Hansard fits into the rotation and how that situation sort of dictates what they do across the, the front four and, and even in that two and
1: three deep. You spent some considerable time on Saturday talking about Tyler Elsden and what you saw from him at at linebacker. It's a spot right now with on the field, thin with scholarship guys. Uh, Any other things to kind of add from there as as you go through that notebook a bit? You know,
2: it's tough because I'm – Asking myself, are, are they actually okay at depth wise there? And and not good, obviously. They like to have more numbers and things like that. Um, but are they okay if Elsden's the sixth guy where you've got, you're going to get Charlie Catcher back? He was back, but he really wasn't back on, on Saturday. He was out there running around during seven on seven and caught the 45 and did a double take because we weren't expecting to see him out there at all. You got Jesse Loquette out there. So, um, you know, you've, you've got, numbers you've got bodies out there you've got uh, Elsden. you've got Kobe King a couple of walk-ons played um on Saturday as well but uh yeah that's uh i i think they might be okay depth-wise at at linebacker i don't think they're they're, they're great um but i think they might be okay from a numbers perspective and if Elsdon can be i think what i'm trying to say here is if Elsden can be that sixth guy then i think you're probably
1: in a pretty decent spot if he's ready to go depth is more than okay at cornerback. and In fact, it's so good that Penn State's using cornerbacks elsewhere on the field with Marquise Wilson uh, being worked in at wide receiver right now. We're still not sure if safety is going to be impacted by this group, but we know Kaelin King has made an impact and, and given them some some flexibility to consider other options at cornerback and, and at other spots on the field, but so too has John Dixon coming in from South Carolina where he was a starter last year with the Gamecocks, uh, a third-year sophomore coming in, uh, and, and clearly Sean, we've heard good things during the spring. We've heard so many things about Kalen King as a fellow newcomer in that cornerback room that that's really been the headline grabber. But it has been consistent with with John Dixon getting that praise. And James Franklin uh, said himself on Saturday that the addition of both King and Dixon have really given them the opportunity to to explore other avenues as a staff and and find out how to get these cornerbacks on the field in different areas.
2: You're probably not talking enough about Johnny Dixon. Just you know, I thought he looked good when he was out there. They were playing him on the, I believe. On on the boundary, and I'm wondering if he's a nickel guy. I wonder, how, I wonder how his reps impact what DaQuan Hardy does because we saw Hardy get beat a couple of times early on Saturday. Then really didn't see a ton of him after that. Um, so I'm just wondering where that sort of uh, changeover takes place. So Dixon, to me, you know, could be a starter at nickel. Could be a guy that you see on the field quite a bit. Still think Tariq Castro, Fields, and Joey Porter are the are the starters there at corner. But uh, you got to feel good about that group. You got to feel good, uh, much better about that group with uh, what you've seen from. Kalen King, Uh, Keaton Ellis started on Saturday. So there's a lot of numbers. there. There's a lot of uh, flexibility. Marquise Wilson's already made the move to wide receiver. So that's uh, certainly stemming off of what they were able to get out of Johnny Dixon and Kalen King. So
1: um, corner, I hesitate to spend too much time on that because you, you feel pretty good about it. Terry Smith must be coming to work, smiling every day because of this group that they have at Penn State. Really impressive. Uh, We'll see how it translates onto the field at cornerback and maybe beyond cornerback uh, here this fall. Uh, We're going to come back. We're going to have Chris Hummer, National Analyst with 24-7 Sports, uh, to give us a a breakdown of the transfer portal, what we're expecting from a a post-spring practice second wave of activity there, the impact of a new transfer rule, and what do you think about Penn State's aggressive approach this offseason and bringing in talent from other universities? We're also going to break down what we're looking ahead toward on Friday evening. One more kind of a surprise look here at Penn State, one we weren't expecting, one we're glad to get. Uh, What will we be looking at closely when we get back into Beaver Stadium? And a five-star mailbag question coming your way. Stick around. It's the Lions 24-7 Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what?
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
1: The transfer portal has been a huge topic of conversation during recent offseasons, probably none more than this offseason for Penn State. Very active, bringing players in and also players leaving. And something just popped up as I was sitting down here to record with Chris Hummer. Does a great job covering the transfer portal and everything that goes on with it for 24-7 sports. Uh, Joseph Johnson, the freshman cornerback, before Penn State, enrolled in January of 2020. Did not see any game action last year. Had some off-field issues during his first year on campus. Um, here we are, last week of spring ball, and there his name is in the transfer portal. Um, a guy who has been passed up by some of the acquisitions at cornerback, it would seem, certainly with Kaitlin King coming in as a freshman, with John Dixon coming in via the transfer portal from South Carolina. And just a lot of talent stockpiled there. So I just wanted to get that out there. Sean and I, I'm sure next episode or into next week, we'll address Joseph Johnson's decision. I know Shane Simmons, whose career we knew was done with Penn State, he now looks like he wants to keep playing football. His name pops up in the transfer portal on Monday. So Without further ado, that, that provides a nice segue to you, Chris, and thanks for your patience in recording here. I had to sit down and write something about Joseph Johnson's move to the Transfer Portal, but you're the man I turn to when, when Transfer Portal pops, stuff pops up. You're often the first man we hear from when, when Transfer Portal events develop as well. So thanks for stepping a- aside, and I'm sure while recording this, like eight different guys are going to enter the portal, and you're going to have to walk back to that list. <laughs>
3: I mean, thankfully, the transfer portal, at least on the football side of things, has slowed down a little bit uh, since we were getting like over 200 players a week in like December and January. But yeah, it's wild. And as we saw today, like within 10 minutes, we had uh, Joseph Johnson uh, enter the portal along with Mike Woods, the receiver from Arkansas, who was their kind of second best uh, outside threat last year. So it's, it's always busy. And especially during spring ball, as you said, we're seeing kids kind of trickle in and out. Uh, with spring practices concluding. So um, always an interesting time.
1: Penn State is among several programs that are wrapping things up right now, and some did last week and some will this weekend. And everybody's kind of shutting down this chapter of the offseason, which is great to have the chapter. We did not see spring practices in 2020, but the anticipation here at Penn State, and James Franklin uh, referenced this during his press conference last week, is, You probably are going to see another wave of of players jumping into the transfer portal. It's something that staffs need to keep an eye on. How do you think that plays out? What's kind of the timeline in your mind where if guys are going to make their move, it's got to happen before this date?
3: I think we're already kind of seeing that. and I think there's several dates along the way that make a lot of sense for transfers. And it goes, I'm being serious, it goes all the way into fall camp. Um, the first one is right now, spring practices, as you mentioned, players are going to jump in. Um, this is probably the biggest wave we'll see the rest of the year. It might not happen all at once, but as spring practices come to a close, um, players kind of see where they are in the depth chart. And also coaches kind of make a decision as to how they want to massage their roster a little bit, potentially um, cut some scholarship numbers away. As unfortunate as that is, as it happens in college football, you'll see players enter the transfer portal. And there's going to be quite a few of those in the coming weeks. I expect, in a lot of ways, you'll see some during the summer as well. Um, It doesn't matter as much as it used to, but we often see grad transfers enter kind of in the summer, uh, right after they graduate. A lot of them will kind of back channel, let schools know they intend to look around, but we'll see some then. And then the smallest number, but a semi-significant number in some cases, will come in fall camp. Uh, Right at the beginning, a player might not be happy with where they're at. Uh, They'll enter the transfer portal. And in some cases, a really needy team will make a last minute addition. Uh, We saw it a lot last year, actually, with the Pac-12 and the Big Ten looking like they were going to sit out the season. We saw a lot of Pac-12 players uh, transfer to other leagues. Uh, Texas Tech, I think, started like three Pac-12 transfers uh, from the jump, even though they'd only been on the team for about a month and a half. So there are three kind of separate windows, with the, the biggest of which is happening right now during spring ball.
1: We're going to be keeping our eyes on it here if, if people are leaving Penn State, but a lot of people are curious about Penn State quarterback. They've got three scholarship guys there right now. Sean Clifford's played a lot of football. Uh, Taquan Roberson, Christian Veyer have not. James Franklin has left the door open repeatedly about them exploring an option in the quarterback market. At this stage, uh, it would feel like working with a new offensive coordinator and and for any quarterback to make a transition to a new system and be able to realistically compete to play this fall. I mean, the clock's got to be ticking.
3: Yeah, it's really tough. If you had a quarterback at this point in the offseason, they're usually going to be more of a depth ad than anything else. Um, we just saw Joe Milton transfer from Michigan to Tennessee. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call that a depth ad. Mich- Tennessee has probably five different quarterbacks that could potentially start. But like, that's a pretty rare occurrence. If you go down kind of the list of trans- quarterbacks in the transfer portal right now, it's a super limited group. I think the only player with legitimate starting experience in the portal right now is Nicosi Perry from Miami. Um, we expect him to end up at FAU uh, with Willie Taggart. Um, after that, like there's a guy like Tate Martell, <laughs> uh, Austin Kendall, the former West Virginia starter um, who lost his job last year. Chris Robeson, who was really good at FAU, but uh, had been gotten, he was in trouble a number of times, both at Oklahoma and FAU. So it's pretty slim pickings. I would say I will expect a couple of transfer quarterbacks to pop up uh, in the next couple of months, Um, kind of the graduate transfer variety we talked about, or maybe somebody who got pushed out of the depth chart. I think a place like LSU is a really interesting one to follow with their quarterback battle there. They've got three legitimate starting options and three quarterbacks. I think that could start at a variety of schools. And there will be kind of situations like that across the country that might fit a pinsay a little bit better. but yeah, the as you said, the window to learn a new system is closing and it makes scaling that gap more difficult the longer you wait.
1: You have been in communication with a lot of these quarterbacks or sources within their camps during the last couple off seasons. What do you find quarterbacks, particularly those who are maybe running out of eligibility, trying to make that impression, that prioritization of, of what they're looking for in their next program, what do you see there? And, and, and what can a guy like Mike Yersich, who certainly has a strong reputation among passers from his last few stops, how can he maybe influence things if Penn State does go after a quarterback out there?
3: Well, the number one question for quarterbacks and any other position, really is playing time. Like unless there's a legitimate path towards playing time, like it's going to be difficult for a quarterback to envision going there, especially with immediate eligibility kind of factoring in now in a way it didn't before Um, some quarterbacks are a little more patient and willing to wait. We've seen that in the past. Um, A guy like Will Greer uh, going from Florida to West Virginia being a really good example. He had to set a year. Anyway, he sat and was one of the better quarterbacks in college football. Um, at his season at West Virginia but in a lot of cases these quarterbacks are moving because they want to play and as we all know only one quarterback can play at a time so it really limits those opportunities so unless you're able to sell a legitimate path towards playing time like it's going to be a tough tough thing but I think with Penn State uh, there is that legitimate sell like if you have the right player kind of come up at the last moment that you can come in and compete with Sean Clifford right away and based on the way we saw Sean Clifford play last season there there seems to be a window there for him and with Mike Yersich, as you said, quarterback development's a huge thing. Um, I don't know if Sam Ellinger got better last year uh, under Mike Yersich. Sam actually probably had arguably one of the worst years of his career, but he was hurt. But in the past, uh, we've seen Mike Yersich work with a guy like Mason Rudolph at Oklahoma State. Uh, he's still in the NFL. He had a really successful career with the Cowboys. We saw him work with Justin Fields in year one at Ohio State. Um, obviously, going to be a top 10 pick here in a couple of months. So I think Mike. Has a history and a reputation of somebody who um, is a quarterback friendly kind of coach. She draws up scheme that allows quarterbacks to kind of display and show off kind of NFL throws. And that's a that's a pretty big chip in Penn State's favor if they needed to go that direction.
1: One thing that a quarterback or or anyone else looking to start with a fresh program isn't going to have to worry about is, is being sidelined for that first year with the team because of new NCAA policy adjustments with the transfer rule. This was one that we had a long time coming, officially announced last week. That's the direction they're going. Can you break it down in simplest forms how you see this rule changing the way teams structure their roster?
3: Yeah, I'm not sure if anything's going to really change based on the way we've seen it go this offseason. I think everybody this offseason has operated with the thought that players are going to get a one-time transfer with immediate eligibility. We've seen a record number of players in a pretty significant way enter the portal. I think we've seen 500 more players this season in the portal in the FBS than we had in either of the previous two offseasons. So the volume is significant. And I think that's only going to continue, maybe not quite to the same extent, but with this one-time eligibility rule, it's gonna allow programs to kind of save spots every year uh, for transfers. I think we saw Penn State do this really well this year, signed a smaller signing class, maybe didn't have, signed a smaller high school class, maybe didn't have as much success as they would have liked in the high school portal and the high school recruiting ranks and kind of augmented that with some really nice transfer additions. And we're gonna see that across the country uh, from Alabama, which I think is going to be like a lot more situational in who they add, to some of the lower ranks like Texas State, which signed an all transfer class this year. And the transfer rule specifically, it's it's pretty simple. Players have four years to play five in college football, and essentially one time during that tenure, uh, they are allowed to transfer without the penalty of a year in residence. So essentially, they do not just sit out any longer. So once in every player's career. They're allowed to transfer and play right away. And it it certainly changes the way we view college football in a lot of ways.
1: One thing that has been a question about this is how long are players going to hang out on campus and and be patient and work for that role on their initial pick? Or are they going to see maybe a, a clearer path toward playing time? with a second program. Do you think that's a legitimate concern for head coaches across America right now and getting guys to buy in, particularly as, as true freshmen and, and true sophomores?
3: It's difficult to feel bad for college football coaches who make so much money uh, to do what they do. But in this area, I certainly feel a coach's complaints. Like it's it's certainly going to shift the way roster construction and roster management works simply because coaches are going to have to re-recruit their players. If you're a former four star recruit and you expected to come in and play right away, and it's been two years and you haven't really seen the field that much, like the grass is going to look greener on the other side. And it's going to be up to the coaches on campus to kind of uh, make clear that the path for playing time might be coming or you need to get better here. And it's going to make tough love situations a little more difficult as coaches. Like it's going to be, coaches are going to have to change the way they communicate because there's no longer kind of the, resistance from a player's perspective of leaving and that you'd have to sit out a year. You can just kind of jump ship and play right away. And it, it's not necessarily to the player's benefit to always do so. I would argue sticking around and kind of working your way through things. is a very healthy thing, both for college football players and just for your life. But I think 18 and 23 year olds don't always look at things that way. So it's going to be extremely difficult for coaches to kind of hang on to some of their big recruiting wins of the past if they're not playing right away. And uh, it's, it's going to be a really compelling dynamic to see how some, especially some of the more old school coaches handle this kind of in the way they discipline players and the way they communicate. When we look At
1: Penn State specifically, here, Chris, um, they've been quite active this offseason. Four guys are already on campus that they brought in from other FBS programs. They've got Eric Wilson, an offensive lineman from Harvard, who was an All Ivy League player. Last we saw him on the field, he's coming in this summer. What does that kind of reflect to you about what Coach Franklin and Penn State are doing with this roster?
3: Yeah, I think it reflects that Penn State struggled last year. They went four and five, and instead of being Patient, and well, I, that's the wrong word. Instead of instead of kind of sitting on his laurels and the success James Franklin had had in previous years, like James Franklin made a really aggressive effort to kind of correct some of the stuff that went wrong last year, and I think that's a big credit to him. Penn State's recruited really well. They obviously had a off cycle in 2021, and I think a different coach may have kind of just sat on that, counted on the development, and Penn State's developed as anyone as well as anybody in the country. I kind of counted on that to fill the gaps, but James Franklin and his staff clearly identified some holes that needed to be filled and they, they did so in a really kind of smart and aggressive way. Um, they obviously lose a really potential first round pick at defensive end. They bring in one of the best pass rushers in the AAC, they Yabake. Um, Derek Tangelo, for my money, was one of the better interior defensive linemen in college football last year um he is now on the roster kind of helps plug a hole there uh john dixon in the secondary uh could start right away for penn state like that group went from kind of a potential weakness to a strength in a very short amount of time because of that and john lovelett who's a guy i'm very familiar with in the state of texas at baylor uh can help add to some of the depth in the running back room and and it was kind of surprising to see penn state deal with running back issues last year but um because that room has been as deep as any other but They plug that all right away. And I think all four additions make sense and make the roster better. When we look at
1: not just Penn State, but across the board, combining the transfer portal, this open door now, with the fact that there's just not a lot of familiarity between coaching staffs and the freshman class for the the 2021 year, because the lack of official visits, the inability to evaluate guys in person, the volume across America, Chris, of guys who signed with programs that they never actually set foot on campus. Do you think that lends itself to maybe a year from now at this time, elevated exodus towards the transfer market?
3: Yeah, I think the 2021 recruiting class in general is going to be really fascinating. Not only that, like, and I certainly agree, I think we're going to see a lot of players in the portal from the 21-21 class. Like, they're just going to get there. And as you said, they've never seen it before and maybe not feel as comfortable as they thought they would. Or maybe they don't get along with the staff that they'd only ever zoomed with. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of that. And like, I think down the line just from the recruiting industry as a whole, we're going to see a lot of kids in the JUCO and FCS ranks that end up blowing up from this class simply because like there wasn't enough film and there wasn't enough tape. And I think, I think in five years from now, the 2021 recruiting cycle and kind of this COVID class is going to be just a really fascinating thing to follow because there's so many factors that went into that. And the transfer portal is certainly going to be one of them. No question.
1: Is the The transfer evolution in in college football, a bad thing for high school seniors, a bad thing for recruits who are 15, 16, 17 years old because coaches are maybe wired in more to find plug and play solutions rather than developmental prospects with limited scholarships to do that. Because it sure seemed like, at least in the last recruiting cycle, that was reflected.
3: Absolutely. I think Bud Elliott had a story on this, our our colleague at 24-7 Sports, where he said, I think there were 500 fewer uh, 2021 high school signees than there were in the 2020 cycle. So when you think about it, that's 500 less scholarships that went to potentially deserving high school players. Some of those weren't given out. Like schools went like really, schools are really hesitant to sign full classes this year as they're trying to save money because they have to pay for the super seniors as well this year in terms of the scholarship limits. But yeah, like a lot of schools chose to go transfers instead of high school recruits because they can help address roster needs right away I think there are less question marks about them. Some of the development pro- developmental prospects in this cycle weren't able to be seen like they had been in years past just because like a lot of states either didn't have football or coaches weren't allowed to get on the road to see them. So I think it certainly does have an adverse effect. And I think it's going to be that way for a few years because while the uh, the super senior rule uh, is really thought about for this class, like every class that was on campus For the 2021 season or the 2020 season, gets an extra year of eligibility. And right now, it doesn't really look like the NCAA past this year is going to expand the scholarship cap past 85 like it is this year. You're allowed to carry an unlimited number of seniors on your roster right now. But that's probably not going to be the case in 2021 or 2022. So, what we're going to see is a glut of players on rosters, and schools are going to have to make decisions between players on campus or proven transfers and potentially taking a risk on kind of lower-end high school prospects. And I think in a lot of cases, coaches are going to choose kind of uh, the thing they already know. So it's I think we're going to see high school prospects the next couple of cycles really lose out because of it.
1: I want to hit on one more topic here with you, Chris, and we'll let you move on from there. Jason Oway is a guy that, that you covered pretty extensively with the story last offseason. And here he is. Uh, we're about a week away from the NFL draft. And I know a lot of Penn State fans – Still trying to wrap their head around the fact that he had zero sacks last year. And yet, here's all this first round buzz. But you, you watch that pro day footage and you remind yourself of how long the kid has played football. Not a kid anymore, a young man, but you think back to when he was a kid, how little he knew about this game. And that was what four years ago. What are you hearing about Jason Oway, his draft possibilities? I know you're also big on, on seeing how guys exit college football compared to how they entered as you kind of go through the old 24-7 sports evaluations and, and, and kind of marry that to how things turned out for their college careers.
3: Yeah, I think you could go in two camps with Jason, and one of them is certainly a production camp. Like, you didn't have any sacks last year. Like, that's a detriment to him. You'd like to see your first-round edge rusher get home. Uh, from time to time but I will say this about Jason he led Penn State in pressures last year Um, he was among like on a per game basis one of the best players at creating pressure nationally for PFF so he was he kind of had the opportunity or for he had the opportunity to get sacks and just didn't always get home and he also kind of disrupted the offense in a way you'd like to see that elite edge rusher go so that that's not a huge huge concern for me although you'd like to see the sack numbers And I'm kind of in the camp. Jason got better every year on campus. Like this kid's only been playing football for what? um, Five years. I think he started his junior year of high school. Um, They had to teach him how to put on his pads. They had to teach him which way to run. And five years later, um, he's gained weight. Um, He's got better athletically. He's improved as a pass rusher. He's still raw, but his technique has been refined. And he's a guy in two or three years, you know, is going to only get better. He's not like one of these guys who's already kind of tapped out physically. And from a physical standpoint, like, nobody has tools like him, man. Like, dude runs a 4'3", and he's six foot four. like, what, 260, 270? Like, I might be off a little bit on that. But, like, you just – you can't teach that. And I think all those traits put together, I completely understand why a team would be willing to take a first-round kind of flyer on him. You just – you don't get that kind of value in an edge rusher often. And I would be shocked if he got out of the second round. I think he's got a really good chance of being kind of a late first-round pick. And I think it's deserved like the kids put in the work. Um, He is a freak physically and he's a guy that, you know, is going to continue to get better as he kind of gets in an NFL system. He works with a position coach daily. He can really focus 100 percent on his craft, his technique. And I just trust that Jason, who I think most people around Penn State really like, is a guy who's going to work hard enough to make it work.
1: We'll find out by next weekend what lies ahead for him. Answers on the recruiting trail and and with the transfer portal will certainly extend into the rest of this year and beyond. And I know you'll be doing a great job covering that for 24-7 sports. Chris, we appreciate your coverage. Always nice to have you back on to talk big picture with some Penn State sprinkled in. So thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: I'm Brandon Short, All American linebacker, current member of Penn State's board, and two time captain of your Nittany Lions. I'm running for re election to Penn State's board. I come from a tough background, and a Penn State education changed my life. I had an NFL career, earned an MBA from Columbia, and I'm now in finance. Penn Staters have a lot of pride in athletics. There are wide-ranging benefits from success in athletics, increasing academic standards, supporting 850 student athletes, and boosting the local economy. The current athletic budget is self-funding and is independent from the university, so investments have no impact on tuition or employee salaries. Yet, over the past decade, Michigan and Ohio State have outspit Penn State by 246 million and 390 million respectively. Some candidates in this election want to de-emphasize athletics, making this gap wider. We must invest not for more touchdowns, but to benefit the local economy and enhance the entire university. If you agree, vote for Brandon Short, Steve Wagman, and Alvin DeLevy so together we can invest in Penn State's future. To vote, go to the link in the podcast show notes now. Thank you.
1: Thanks again to Chris Hummer. Um, always a good conversation. Certainly someone you should be following their coverage on 24-7 sports from the national end. Back here in Happy Valley, we are focused in on another trip to Beaver Stadium this Friday, Sean. As I mentioned be- before the break and before the conversation with Chris, this is not a trip to Beaver Stadium we were expecting. We thought Saturday was going to be it for us until the summer seeing this squad. Turns out they have a, an allotment of another week of spring ball. Not sure how that worked out, but the, that's how it's set up. You're going to have senior students in the building again Friday. I'd expect you'll have guests of players and and, uh, and staff members again. So a fairly decent crowd. I don't know what that number will be. There were 7,500 Friday, but we're going to be in that crowd as it turns out. So what are we looking for? And, and we'll start with your perspective here that maybe we didn't get a chance to see in, in, in full scope on Saturday. I mean, the the easy answer is some sort of progress
2: with the offense. You know, there was certainly hitches at that at, at times in what they were trying to do in the execution. Hopefully, you know, some of those offensive linemen are healthy and ready to go on Friday. So give us a little bit better picture of what we're looking for. As, as I meant, I mean, I, I don't think I can stress it enough. Um, you know, those uh, was it Anthony Wigan and Celine Wormley were in there. Certainly not been Penn state's best fi- front, best five up front to start. So I think you want to see some progress there. You want to see some more um, a little bit with the progressions with the quarterbacks and, you know, sort of making the right decisions. I, I think I looked at Roberson in that instance. Because he made some good decisions, made some good throws, and then just made some some really bad takes uh there. Uh it throwing the interception to Kalen King on the screen. So that's trying that's it's really what they're trying to shake with him right now. So some progression. It all starts at the quarterbacks, obviously, but you just want to see some sort of um from week one to week or excuse me, I guess
1: it's probably week four to
2: week five uh progression from Penn State this Saturday. Mention this,
1: Friday. yeah. <laughs> mention this in the write up on Sunday morning, but it was an incomplete look at the offensive line. If you're trying to frame it any other way, I think it's a bit irresponsible because there were two key components missing. Um, from what would have, I think, been the starting unit at this point. With you know, and I don't want to shortchange guys like Warmly and Wigan, but I think we would have seen a lot of Juice Scruggs. I think we would have seen him in a first team role. Um, and that very well may have been the case if Des Holmes was available to compete. And then you throw in the fact that Landon Tengwall was sidelined. Um, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to get a chance to look at him on Friday Um, would hope that that kind of goes across the board I guess you can apply that Sean to other spots John Lovett at running back would would be great to see him involved uh, on the field there Jair Brown at safety guys that that you know for whatever reason and I want to reiterate very well have been something that kept them off the field for one day for a precautionary thing doesn't mean they've missed significant time doesn't mean they will miss significant time Um, but that's something to look for in general but going back to the offensive line um, you know, want to see who, who's involved there. Also, probably now going to try to take a closer look at, at some of those second year players. Olu Fashano was getting quite a bit of work on the right side at tackle. Jimmy Christ w- was coming in at, at right tackle as well. Nick Dawkins, uh, Golden Israel, Achumba, both were working in at guard. Um, if, if they're involved to that extent, I would try to do my best to take a longer look at each of those guys because they have been under wraps out of sight for us for a very long time. It's tough because you got the binoculars
2: there and you're trying to sort, you know, trying to figure out what's going on with quarterbacks. And you receivers. want to see the quarterback yeah. So you're yeah, following so the ball a bit. Yeah. <laughs> DVR is, DVR is incredible just yeah. in terms of running that back and, and learning more about the team. That's, that's something. But, uh, uh, one of those guys in particular that I'm going to have in my binoculars is Ellis Brooks. And I know I've been very hard on Ellis Brooks. A lot of people have, have come down on him was actually pretty good on sa- on Saturday when we were there, you know, just kind of in position, um, you know, finishing off plays and things like that. So I'm, I'm excited to see if there is tangible progress there from him in the last season. I mean, you know, they need it at Mike. Uh, of course, he's going to compete with Jesse Lucchetta when Lucchetta gets back. And um but it, I, I think, you know, he did some nice things on Saturday and it would be, I would be remiss if I didn't compliment him for the way that he played on Saturday. I just want to see more progress. I want to see more of that and more consistency there.
1: And one other guy I definitely want to see, um, Marquise Wilson. Um, it's, It's a lot to say that he's going to make some huge strides at receiver in the matter of three practices in the matter of six days but we um, just want to see, see him out there for a longer it's it's clear because of the way Taylor Stubblefield and the coaching staff were kind of attached to the hip with him on the field on, on Saturday that it's a learning process right now I don't know if he's three four practices in to trying to work and compete at that position at the college level um, but he's a guy because of the ball skills because of the big play and you've mentioned this before he brings some of that alpha mindset to the receiver room that 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 hasn't always been there in a lot of spots over recent years um, does that translate it does that take a little while because let's face it he's gonna have to be confident genuinely confident in, in what he's doing at wide receiver um, I think he was generally genuinely confident at, at what he was doing at cornerback but he had been there for quite some time and that's where he had, he's played 19 Penn State games so this is all new I would love to see him go out there and make a player or two and start to build some momentum there and I think to do it in front of a bit of a crowd at Beaver Stadium this is a kid that it, it will take one opportunity two opportunities to go out there do something and have a lot of people in the media a lot of people like us Talking about how how he's going to be some kind of breakout and, and he's going to be an X factor because he has he has that ability to grab the ball and I think you know zoom down the field and catch a lot of people's attention. Maybe people will get ahead of themselves, uh, but I think he's the guy who has a chance to kind of turn heads on a dime, and and maybe that happens Friday night under the lights. Well, we've seen him be a talented football player at the college
2: level, at the high school level, and you you see what Penn State has numbers wise at wide receiver. I mean that that that's. Logical to think that he could make a jump, and and just as a whole, I would love to see some big plays. You know, you you, you talked about the uh, the uh, explosiveness in the post game uh, from the running game, and you'd like to see a little bit more. They had some nice chunk plays uh, early, especially Devin Ford had a couple nice runs. Kevon Lee uh, got out into some space. Would like to see some more of that in the past game. So um, just big plays on both sides. Uh, the you know the pick six was great. Uh, the interceptions were fine. I. I Tend to, we probably tend to overrate those a little bit because number one, terrible decision by Roberson on the screen. Number two, probably a throw Sean Clifford wouldn't have made if he, he, you know, was in a real game. So, um, it's, uh, it's nice to be in that, those positions, but you like to see some big plays on, on both sides of the ball.
1: The biggest play on offense was, uh, that 45 yard touchdown to Brenton Strange, but there was a major defensive issue on that play. There wasn't anyone within 10, 15 yards even of Brenton Strange when he got that ball. So, um, it's hard to to chop that one up as, as uh, you know, something that was a big play where you beat great defense. You want to—I I, I, want to see Sean Clifford. I would say that's one thing I'll be really looking forward to. Sean Clifford's going up a really, against a really talented cornerback unit. We've already talked about that. I think he'll have some pressure applied to him. I want to see him beat close coverage downfield and, and 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 have that kind of connection downfield with, with the with wide receiver with the tight end in um, tight coverage, beating it. That's something I'd be really—you know—I just felt like a lot of the balls that were in contested coverage. Wasn't much of a chance for his guy to make a play on that on Saturday. And I think you'd like to see some progress in that department on Friday evening. Um, we saw we saw some seven-on-seven seven before yeah. and
2: the throws that they were making in seven-on-seven se- seven weren't necessarily the, the places they were going, you know, and I think pressure has a lot to do with that, but it wasn't necessarily where they were going in the constructs of the scrimmage. So I'd like to see a little bit more of that, uh, you know, working across the field, a lot of drag stuff that they were working on. You know, I'd like to see a little bit more of that.
1: Uh, we'll take a look on Friday. We'll, we'll bring you what we see uh, once again here on the podcast and with our coverage. It's five-star mailbag time. We've got one question for you, and we're going to keep it on the development of this team. And, and on the wide receiver position, Sean, uh, this is a spot, uh, as the question alludes to w- – w- Featured some newcomers last year. Um, last year we saw two true freshmen start as re- at receiver by the end of Penn State season. Do you think it's possible that total gets matched in 2021? And Sean, I'm going to say because you and I are not in the business of speculating injuries, um, I'm going to anticipate that Parker Washington and, and Jahan Dotson are locked in as as starters for this squad from game one through game 13. Um And and, and I'm going to say that that. One is the is the maximum I see fitting in here. I'm gonna say under two, um, but uh, door could be open for one. The guy's just got to come ready to work. He's coming in the summer, like Parker Washington did last year. Well, you got to look at the loophole here. They're still
2: true freshmen. So, yes, they're going to have two starting receivers by the end of the year. <laughs> but the, the, the question, obviously, uh, centering around Lonnie White, Liam Clifford, Trey Wallace, um, I don't see that happening. I mean, Lonnie White, I think just it physically uh, could step in right away and be a part of that rotation, probably will take him a little bit longer to uh, break into the starting lineup. I think he's got uh, more ahead of him than Parker Washington had last year and Keandre Lambert to an extent. Of course, the health of guys like Cam Sullivan Brown are, are always in question and they're, they're going to impact this question, um, that, that, that was asked here. But no, I, I don't see that happening. I think Liam Clifford's very polished. I don't think he's. Um, coming in like parker washington the way that he was ready to go right away that's a very very difficult thing to see and and we know uh, you know we saw Keandre lambert was a very very talented high school receiver defensive back three-way player um, there's a lot of development that goes to playing and starting right away and even even if he was even as he was starting you know he wasn't a big impact guy for penn state so i don't see that happening this year
1: yeah, if if someone was going to start a game a, a, as a true freshman, I would probably favor it being Liam Clifford at this moment right now for Penn State. Uh, but I would also say that there, I I think there's a better chance you see two true freshmen in the two deep than you see one in the starting lineup. I, I guess that that's that's where I'm coming from here, and uh, I think that door is open. But uh, interesting question. We'll get to some more questions. Uh, we've gotten a few on on spring, and and now that we're wrapping up spring ball, drop your five star mailbag question on Apple Podcasts. Give us that five star rating and review and. Throw in whatever you want to talk about. We'll address it here on the podcast and uh, may go on for several minutes. We may go on for 30 seconds, but we'll, we'll do our best to get on uh, with, with the mailbag here. Sean, I know you have an important appointment to get to here on a Tuesday uh, late morning. We'll let you do that. Um, we'll have this podcast up soon. And then I think we're not going to be back again until after we get another look at this team. Is that the plan? I think that's the plan, yes. Okay, so we have that Friday. We don't know what time we're going to be in Beaver Stadium, depending on how that works out. Keep an eye out Friday night into Saturday for a podcast coming your way out of Beaver Stadium. Once again, Sean and I, thanks for, to Penn State for opening its doors. We look forward to seeing this team once more. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening to this podcast and Chris Hummer for hopping on uh, again. On behalf of Sean, I'm Tyler. This is the Lions 24-7 podcast.